Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we look at the declining population in rural parts of the state and hear about the young Coloradans who are returning to their family farms. How in the heck can you pass land down three generations and have to pay for it three times and make it work? And we talk about a new program aiming to reduce recidivism by connecting people who were formerly incarcerated with jobs. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Smaller counties are getting smaller and bigger counties are getting bigger. The 2020 census showed us that is true in Colorado, as well as the nation overall, with rural birth rates dropping, death rates rising, and young people moving away. Some leave behind multi-generational farming legacies and the land that comes with it, but others are coming back. As a part of our rural reporting project, KUNC's Adam Reyes has more from Yuma County. After leaving the family ranch in southwestern Colorado for college, 36-year-old Nikki Weathers swore she would never go back to an agricultural way of life or become a stay-at-home mom. Today... We always tell people we raise corn kids and cattle and sometimes in that order and sometimes... She's referring to her life in Yuma County, a Nebraska-Colorado border county with rolling plains dotted with farmhouses, oil wells, grazing cattle, and about 10,000 residents. Nikki and her husband Nathan co-own a 5,000-acre farm and co-parent two kids, Ty and Tenley, with some help from Nathan's parents, who still run their own farm next door. And actually, so Dad's running the combine right now. The Weathers have been producing in the county for generations. Nathan met Nikki at Colorado State. My wife, the brains of the operation. And the broad. The couple is an increasingly rare breed in agriculture young or less experienced producers. Between 2002 and 2017, federal survey data show the number of people running the same farm for fewer than 10 years dropped dramatically nationwide. Up-to-date data isn't coming until next year, but the decline is expected to continue. Some out here also worry about the consolidation this trend could lead to, a shrinking group of people or corporations, each with increasingly larger amounts of farmland. But in Yuma County... The part is, is there's so many young farmers and ranchers coming back that dads are fighting against each other to get bigger. At 38, Nathan Weathers is a fourth-generation Yuma County farmer with over 10 years in charge. And they're back in Yuma County for good reason. Um, it's a great county to raise a family. It's a great county to farm and ranch in. We've got the outlet for the feed. You know, we've got everything that we need right here. Despite and the massive national decline, the number of new and upcoming producers actually increased in Yuma and the state overall. As of 2017, the county's population of less experienced principal producers hit a 20-year high, with one of the largest shares of farmers under 35 in Colorado beating both the state and national percentage by a few points. Um, feeders, we've got, we just kind of keep a couple calves on feed. We sell the couple is also feed. bringing new ideas to the old business. The Weathers didn't raise cattle for decades. Previous generations sold them to focus solely on the planting operation. 
About five years ago, the cattle returned at Nikki's insistence. With around 300 cows in their pens today, it's been a financial boon for the couple. But Nathan's parents still aren't interested. And, so that, and that's fine. But then we've had to re-change the goals and the vision for what the farm itself looks like, where we now have had to kind of separate off. The additions to the family's agricultural legacy also include occasionally running a corn maze and pumpkin patch to educate local students. Our nieces and nephews live in town, go to school at a small rural school, and just think that Papa's Combine is Papa's Combine, but don't understand the importance of having agriculture and what it actually means. They also attempted to create a monarch butterfly habitat, have three flourishing pollinator plots, want roof solar panels someday, and have started planning for the day their kids might take over. We talk about estate planning and like how estate planning gets talked to to death. But the one thing nobody talks about is is actual transfer of management. Nathan's grandfather passed away last December. When his father took over the land 10 months later, he had to pay for it. At one point, Nathan told his dad, you just took out a 30-year note buying your dad's ground, which we've already paid for once, because yeah. grandpa had a note on it. And if Nathan someday tries to get that land himself, he'd likely have to buy it again. I said, how in the heck can you pass land down three generations and have to pay for it three times and make it work. It's like, you can't do it. I said, you have to figure it out. The older generations, he says, tend to focus on ownership, wanting their name on their land. And it's an honor, and they deserve it. And I, there's absolutely nothing against that. But he and Nikki see things differently. We're structuring everything to where, you know, it, it should be seamless from us to our kids. It won't be easy, though. The couple has to figure out how best to incorporate the business for transfer, pass on financial equity, deal with taxes, constantly changing laws, and the operation's consistent growth. We don't want our kids going anywhere. Yeah. And this county's been good to us. And so far, kids seem on board. The 11-year-old already promised to take over one day and help his parents retire to the mountains, just like his mother wants. Nikki jokes that she'll hold him to that. Adam Reyes, KUNC. And that story was produced in part by the America Amplified Initiative, a national public media collaboration focused on community engagement reporting. KUNC reporter Adam Reyes joins us now to tell us a little bit more about the story we just heard and how it fits into our new rural reporting project. Hey, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us about this rural reporting project. Explain really what's different about it. You know, KUNC has hundreds of rural and small communities in its listening area. Hundreds. And we can try to bounce between all those communities, which allows us to get a wider variety of stories from a wider variety of places. And that can be hugely valuable. But that also prevents us from really connecting with the community in these places because they barely get to know us before we move on. And the same is true in reverse because we barely get to know the community. There might be important contexts we miss in our stories, populations that have valuable input that we just don't talk to. 
So we want to try something different. We want to focus on a single community area or county for weeks, maybe months. Keep going back to residents there, not just to ask them to be sources for stories that we're creating, but also just to build a connection. Right. Well, and that takes us to Yuma County. And this is the place you chose to focus on first. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so for a few reasons. First, it's a community that we rarely cover. It's on the far outskirts of our listening area and is a lot more separated from the Front Range. It's also less than half the size of other Plains counties like Morgan and Logan. But there's a lot that makes it special beyond just its size and distance from our normal coverage areas. In 2017, the USDA ranked the counties by agricultural production. Yuma County came in at number two in the state, beat only by Weld County, which is literally more than 30 times Yuma's population size. Yuma also ranked 36th in the nation. That's County Commissioner Scott Weaver speaking to me on a bus a few weeks ago. I was there touring part of the county along with the State Agriculture Commissioner and representatives for Congressman Ken Buck and both senators. One of the stops we made was at a massive potato production plant run by ProHealth. Unfortunately, I wasn't allowed to record inside, but it was a jaw-dropping operation. It felt like everywhere you looked, there was potatoes either falling out of something, flying across the building on conveyor belts, being sorted by size and type, either by hand, imaging technology, or some combination of both. I wish you could hear what that sounded like. Yuma also contains a large portion of the Republican River. We don't talk about that river as much as we do the Colorado, which makes sense because the Colorado River is a lot larger and runs through more states. But the situation on the Republican River is pretty dire, too. Conservation District General Manager Deb Daniel spoke about this at a presentation recently. So we're looking at alternatives to just the traditional agricultural products that we have today because we know that we've got to look forward to be able to sustain our uh, aquifer and our economies after. The governor's office proposed $15 million in funds to support the Republican and Rio Grande River basins. Agriculture Commissioner Kate Greenberg recognizes that a lot more will be needed. These dollars are never intended to be the only um, the only funding solution for these basins. You'll hear more about this river in an upcoming story. So, Adam, clearly a lot going on in Yuma agriculture-wise, but what else can you tell us about what's happening there and who lives there? You know, with a few exceptions, most small counties in Colorado and nationwide lost population in the 2020 census count, while bigger counties got bigger. While Yuma was among the counties that lost population, its loss was the smallest in the state, barely half a percent. Yuma's Hispanic and Latino population has been growing, most living in one of the county's two population centers, the cities of Yuma and Ray. There's a lot more I can say. For example, like the rest of the state, there's a worker shortage in Yuma. The county unemployment rate is below 3%, but the school district there had to stop in-town bus routes because they couldn't find enough drivers. Well, clearly many things to cover in Yuma, but Adam... Tell us about how this folds into the reporting project that we're working on. How do you plan to choose what to focus on? You know, normally when I'm working on a story, I kind of will decide what to cover on my own, right? I'll do research to see what people are interested in or talking about, find data, make a background phone call or two. But ultimately, I usually already have at least an inkling of an idea on my head of what we're going to cover. We're not going to do that anymore with this reporting project. With help from America Amplified, instead, we're going to go to the community first, drop all our preconceived notions about what kinds of stories we can or should find out there, and just listen to what people think is important. Ask people what information needs their community has, what stories aren't being told, so we can hopefully ensure our reporting is actually valuable for the people who live there. Can you give us an idea of what that's going to look like? 
Yeah, that's going to look like a lot of things. For example, right now we're trying to work with some local organizations and hopefully create a survey that we can use to better understand the needs of the community. I also drove the two hours to Yuma recently to sit in on an advisory meeting organized by the Colorado State University Extension and opportunities to just listen to the agriculture producers out there. The reason I'll be covering the dwindling water supply in the Republican River next, as I mentioned earlier, is that the people in that meeting repeatedly listed that as one of their top concerns. But it's not just the ideation phase that we want to have the community involved at this level for. We hope to be constantly checking back in with these community groups while we're in the middle of reporting a story to make sure there aren't any angles we're missing. And after the story comes out to get criticism and thoughts on what we should cover next. So is this how the story we just heard earlier in the show about generation farm transfer? Is that how you reported that story? Kind of. I just showed up and started listening. And over an hour and a half long conversation, this is what the weather's on their own, decided they wanted to talk about most. I then contacted them as I was putting together the story to make sure that I wasn't missing anything, and I'll reach out again to get feedback. My goal is to spend a lot of time doing that kind of listening with larger groups and more intentionality, letting them lead the conversation. Hopefully this will build more trust and ensure we're creating stories that are mutually beneficial for us, the people in the community we're covering, and listeners outside that community too. Well, Adam, I'm curious, your first true engagement meeting was that University Extension Agriculture Advisory Group. What else did you learn from the people there apart from concerns about the Republican River? A lot was discussed there. I think the concern that came up most often after the river was about the disconnect these producers feel exists between bureaucracy and state government and their reality on the ground. For example, at one point during the tour of his family farm, Nathan Weathers points to the roof on a new storage building and says, I mean, this whole day, I'm thinking it'd be full of solar panels right He later told me that the Regional Electric Association is one of the things holding them up from doing that because they want to make sure they're producing only just enough electricity for themselves from the solar panels, but not so much that they could sell that power. County Commissioner Scott Weaver took us on the tour I mentioned earlier with the goal of convincing State Agriculture Commissioner Kate Greenberg to open a second headquarters in Yuma County. I asked him how serious he was about that goal. He said it would help the state. Understand. You know, we're good people. You know, we're trying to feed the world and we take care of the land. And it'd be nice to have that representation out here. Later, I asked Commissioner Greenberg if that second headquarters would be possible. If Scott would pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) But she doesn't disagree that such a connection is needed. Regardless of whether or not we have brick and mortar offices in a building, we've got staff all over the state. The majority of our staff are remote, are field-based, work with producers every single day, and many of them are producers. And I love that about our agency. If they keep doing that, she added, maybe someday they'll have an office right next to Commissioner Weaver's desk in Ray. All right. Well, that's KUNC's rural and small communities reporter, Adam Reyes. Adam, thanks for your reporting on this. Thank you for having me. You can find more of Adam's reporting from rural Colorado on our website, KUNC.org. Children ages 5 to 11 are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, and many people have questions about this step in the vaccination process. KUNC is collaborating with America Amplified to answer your questions about the vaccine, and we want to know what you're curious about. What questions do you have about the vaccine for younger children? Submit them at KUNC.org, and we'll send back your answers. 
Coming up after the break, Colorado has one of the country's highest rates of recidivism. We'll hear about a new hiring initiative from the state that's trying to reduce recidivism by pairing people recently released from prison with employers looking for workers. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Each year, more than 8,500 people are released from Colorado state prisons after serving their sentence. According to the Colorado Attorney General's office, nearly half of the people released return to prison within three years for various reasons. And that figure puts Colorado among the top states in the country for rates of recidivism. Happening alongside that here in Colorado is the ongoing worker shortage. State leaders have been hearing a lot of concern from business owners, many of whom are having trouble finding people to fill job openings. Well, last week, Attorney General Phil Weiser unveiled a new $1.1 million initiative with the intention of helping both of these issues. The new public-private initiative will invest into re-entry services and develop a network of employers who are willing to hire those who are recently released. Tatiana Flowers covers inequity for the Colorado Sun, and she recently reported on this new initiative and its potential to curb recidivism. Tatiana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. State leaders appeared pretty optimistic about what this plan can do for both people who were recently released from prison and for employers who are looking for workers. That almost seems too good to be true, but can you kind of lay out this initiative and what the plan is? Yes. So the Department of Law announced on Tuesday that it is providing $1.1 million to curb recidivism, promote public safety, and create opportunities for the thousands of people leaving Colorado's prisons every year. As I think you said, 15,000 people are incarcerated in the state at any given time. 8,500 people get out each year after serving their time, and nearly half of those 8,500 people return. So the Department of Law is giving $900,000 over three years to the Department of Corrections so that the Department of Corrections can build a group of employers who are willing to hire people leaving prison. And the remaining 200000 will be used for grants to support the community organizations that will be helping the recently released people with job skills, mental health support, housing, and other basic necessities that they will need. 
Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with this sort of network of first chance employers. Um, are officials thinking that enough employers are going to participate in this? That wasn't exactly clear. There were reporters who attended a news conference that was held the same day um, that this was announced and the same day that a report about recidivism and trying to curb it was announced or was released, excuse me. And a reporter did ask that question. And I think the hope is just that the next phase of this will be trying to get buy-in from business leaders, which they're calling first chance employers because it will be the first chance that many of these recently released people will have to find employment. So that's to be seen. And that's actually the next phase of this um, that I think that most of us will be hearing about is that the coalition will be working to engage business leaders and try to get them on board with training so that they can get up and running. Can you give us uh, some examples of these reentry services and what that looks like and how that touches recidivism? Yes. Yeah, so the the that part is was not exactly clear to me yet. But I know that coalition leaders will be working to um, train employers uh, so that they can ensure that the the people that they hire uh, will be okay on the job and that um, uh, the people who are formally incarcerated that agree or are chosen for this program are also trained and get the wraparound services that they need. This part wasn't exactly talked about as much. Um, so I, can, I don't know if I can can say as much as I, I want about it. Well, I think you maybe kind of touched on this, but I know there's like a lot of different reasons why people might return to prison after they leave. And is this idea that, you know, if they can kind of land a job, that's less likely to happen, that those various things are less likely if you are employed after being released? Yes, I think that's the whole point of this is that we know that people who don't have a job when they come out of prison are more, much more likely to go back. Um, and also there was some talk about the lack of connection to family and other rack, wraparound supports like mental health services, physical health services and other opportunities, which could lead people back to prison. So that's why this is being used um, as a tool to curb recidivism. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is, of course, not the first time the state has sort of keyed in on the recidivism rate and trying to reduce it. But the timing of this program is interesting. As we mentioned, across the state, employers are trying to find workers. And it sounds like the governor and state leaders are pretty optimistic here that this will sort of help with the pandemic employment crunch. Um, did you get that sense of optimism from Governor Polis and others at the press conference? Yeah, actually, in journalism, we try to snatch the reader's attention right away by starting the story with something we found most interesting. And that's how I started the story. Basically, the governor argued during the news conference that since business leaders are complaining about not being able to find workers, why not think outside of the box and hire less traditional employees who are willing and able to work and really need a job so much so that their health and well-being and freedom depends on finding employment. So that was how I started the story. um, And that was a part of his appeal to business leaders in the area. Um, And one of the most important parts of this whole endeavor, from what I heard at the news conference, is that the success of this program really depends on whether or not there's buy-in from local business owners. As this initiative continues to roll out and moves ahead, what are you going to be keeping an eye on? It sounds like uh, employer buy-in is going to be a big one, but what else? Yeah, definitely buy-in. I think also just I will be maybe doing a follow-up to see like how the money is being used um, and if the organizations are true to what they said, which is trying to make sure there's equity in who they choose. The There was actually a question I asked during the news conference 
since I'm on the equity beat, I just wanted to know since there will be more people than the coalition can help, how are they going to choose who gets to participate? Um, and they said that medium to high risk or medium and high risk individuals will be chosen because the people at lower risk will already have a connection to possible employment already or connection to family and other supports. Um, and so that they won't need as much support from this coalition, I was told. Is there anything else that you think is important that I didn't ask about or? One thing that I left out of the story uh, because it's not always possible to fit everything in just because of suggested length. Um, and also sometimes we're on tight deadlines, but there was a statistic that I had trouble fact checking on deadline, but maybe this is a good time to share it. There was a woman named Stacy Putka. She's the director of a, an organization named Breakthrough, which helps people who are formerly incarcerated. And she spoke at the news conference and actually helped me find the formerly incarcerated woman that I focused on. Um, but the statistic is people with criminal records have a work turnover rate that's 13% lower than people without a criminal history, yet the unemployment rate of Colorado's people on parole is still 27.5%. So that to me shows that people who are formerly incarcerated are less likely to leave a job, yet they're still less likely to be hired. Um, and this woman, Stacy, I think shared this because she's, you know, she wanted to show that that's why this initiative matters. And she said that when we can invest in the community and invest in opportunities for people, then those people can create um, better lives for themselves and help close this gap. So the only other thing I think I would say is just that um, what comes next is that the coalition will be trying to get business owners to agree to hiring people just out of prison. And there will be training for them in an incubator program. Um, and businesses that are willing to help can reach out to the Latino Coalition community for community leadership um, to learn more about how to join this upcoming accelerator program. Tatiana Flowers is a reporter covering equity for the Colorado Sun. Tatiana, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, the University of Colorado Denver was recently designated as a Hispanic-serving institution, the first research university in our state with that claim. We'll explore the changing student demographics at CU Denver, Latino representation throughout the university system, and how school leaders intend to pursue newly available grants to help students. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.